Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Political Science Department of Providence College. My name is William Hudson, Professor of Political Science and host of this podcast. On our last episode recorded on August 18th, uh, the day after the beginning of the Democratic Convention, uh, I had with me my colleagues Adam Myers and Matt Guardino discussing the presidential election. At that time, I promised to bring back both of them after the conventions uh, to talk about the presidential election as it officially gets into full swing. And so here we are uh, back to talk some more about the presidential election. And it has been a remarkable several weeks since the last episode. Both conventions completed largely virtual events adopting widely differing tones and emphasis. Perhaps overshadowing both conventions have been the instances of political violence and civil disruption in Kenosha, Wisconsin and Portland, Oregon. In Kenosha, the police shooting of Jacob Blake and the subsequent protests led to confrontations between protesters and right-wing vigilantes, one of whom shot and killed two protesters. On the West Coast in Portland, another confrontation between protesters and right-wing militias resulted in the shooting death of a militia member. Contrasting narratives of these events have dominated the early days of the presidential campaigns. Today, we will review both the political conventions and what they reveal about each campaign strategy and how they may affect the race. In addition, we'll want to discuss how both Trump and Biden have reacted to the, to the Kenosha and Portland events and their potential impact on the race and probably other matters that have come up. It seems like every day as this campaign's developed, there are new things to talk about. Uh, listeners should be familiar with both my guests. Adam Myers, as I remind you, is our department's expert on political parties and state politics, and Matt Gordino, our public opinion and media expert. So Adam, Matt, welcome back to Beyond Your Newsfeed uh, after these few uh, amazing weeks. So why, why don't we get started with the review of the conventions? And Matt, do you wanna maybe get us started with kind of a review of them as media events? Anything in particular that you noticed in the both conventions uh, with your media expert eye that we ought to take note of? Uh, sure, Bill. So um, we had a chance during our last um, episode to just talk a little bit about the beginning of the Democratic National Convention um, and kind of the way that the sort of Democrat strategy um, was kind of being laid out for that week in terms of, uh, you know, how they would use the convention. And I have to say, I think it pretty much played out as they would have expected and hoped that it would. Um, I think that uh, the the messages were clear. Uh, I think the messages came through really quite well, um, considering the virtual format, and in some ways even better uh, than would be expected in a normal sort of televised convention. The the speeches um, or testimonials by ordinary voters, I think, were um, kind of came across in uh, the ways that the campaign would have liked. Um, added a kind of element, a personal element that seemed maybe a little more authentic than I think it may have normally uh, seemed in a regular televised convention. 
And uh, I think that the, the Democrats really kind of hit um, on their major themes in terms of basically all the reasons why the country should not reelect Donald Trump. Um, reaching out to different constituencies of voters to create this kind of sort of proverbial big tent. Um, on the Republican side, I think it was more or less um, what many of us would have expected um, in terms of um, a spectacle uh, and a spectacle that focused um, very much on a kind of singular message, I would say, and delivered that in various forms with various speakers. And that message really kind of painting the Biden um, and uh, Harris ticket as a, as a radical ticket, a ticket that's dangerous for America um, and dangerous in particular on these so-called law and order issues. And uh, of course, very different than the Democratic National Convention in the sense that there were more in-person kind of elements to it. And in particular, and this, I was talking about this with my students just the other day, um, the strange, and I think to many of us troubling spectacle of seeing a sitting president sort of using the White House, right, as a kind of symbolic and, and real kind of backdrop, a kind of tool of reelection by sort of speaking, right, um, in that venue. Um, and also, I'd be remiss if I didn't also just mention on the Republican side, uh, the fact that, you know, they had an in-person crowd there. Um, and, uh, of course, not, a not as large of a crowd as would be in a normal kind of convention setting. Um, and many of them, uh, the attendees were not wearing masks. So I think that is important to th to just to think about um, it sort of symbolically and, you know, what it kind of communicates uh, I think, unfortunately, this issue of mask wearing right has become deeply politicized. Um, and it, it seems like it's, um, you know, sort of uh, part and parcel, right, of the sort of the Republicans overall message in this campaign. Okay. Yeah, I want us to talk a little bit about why using the White House is so troubling. But before I do that, I want to give Adam a chance to put in his two cents of his impressions of the convention, uh, what he might want to add to what you had to say, Matt. So I largely agree with what Matt said. Uh, I think that there were a few other elements, particularly of the Republican convention that were noteworthy to me at least, um, and that um, should be mentioned. So one of them is the fact that much of, well, many of the speeches actually, but Trump's acceptance speech on Thursday night in particular, really kind of was pitched as a defense of kind of American heritage and American history Right. He sort of reiterated over and over again this notion that the Democratic Party is an unpatriotic party, um, that it sees America as a quote unquote wicked nation that must be punished for its sins. And I thought, you know, this this was this was interesting, uh, this kind of effort to rally around or to rally kind of patriotic Americans around the Democratic uh, around the Republican Party by suggesting that the other party really doesn't believe in America or thinks that you know America is a is a flawed country at its core. Um, I also really found interesting the obvious efforts in the Republican convention to uh, rehabilitate Trump's image among minority voters. Um, there were really a, a, a tremendous number of uh, of speakers of color. Um, and female speakers in the Republican convention. I think that was an obvious effort to counter the Democratic convention, which, which very explicitly um, tried to uh, depict the Democratic party as the party of, of, of racial and democratic, demo, uh, demographic, excuse me, diversity. Um, you know, this, this, is, this is obviously concerning to the Trump campaign, 
um, which has has made no secret about the fact that it's it's trying to appeal to black voters. Again, the goal is not to you know convince most black voters to uh, vote for Trump, but I think the hope is that you know if just a, a, a small percentage of black voters shifted from Democrat to Republican, that that could deliver. Trump some key victories in some swing states. So those were two things that I noticed about the Republican convention in particular that caught my eye. Yeah, I was uh, taken by by the attempt to portray Trump as empathetic. I, I don't think that's a word I could really ever associate with him, given his statements about various people and the like. But But their attempt by bringing to attention certain individuals who he has helped and the like. Uh, uh, again, a contrast with the Democratic convention where Biden's empathy was emphasized uh, partly also by his relationships with certain individuals, but uh, in, the, in the way that he uh, interacts with them, Whereas in the case of Trump, it was more of individuals brought on who talk about, talked about something Trump did for them, uh, like uh, commuted a sentence or uh, provided them with some something or uh, that was strange. Uh, I'm kind of curious to what extent, so, so to some extent the conventions set up a battle of empathy in this campaign. Uh, do you think that will carry through over the next few weeks? Uh, is this gonna be partly a, a campaign about which candidate is actually empathetic? I think to some extent, to so, um, I, but I also think to, that to a large extent, that's sort of already baked in. Um, most Americans have already come to their conclusions about the extent to which Trump and Biden are empathetic personable figures. Uh, what's, what's striking to me is actually, if you look at the polls, um, you know, there's a, a question that a lot of survey researchers ask about politicians to what extent they are likable. Um, you would think that, you know, given all of the emphasis that, that the Democrats put into showing just how empathetic, as you say, just how concerned about others Biden is, that, that he would score much, much higher on the likability scale than Trump. Uh, but the polls don't reveal that. I mean, he does score slightly higher, but not all that much, uh, which just goes to show you how I think so much of um, our perceptions of the, of the uh, presidential candidates has to do with partisanship, right? Partisanship really does create a ceiling um, in terms of, for example, Biden's likability ratings, because, you know, no matter what he says or does, Republicans are not going to find him likable. And the same would go, of course, for Trump among Democrats. Yeah, uh, yeah Matt. So I just wanted to build off that. I'm glad that Adam brought up the, the, that, 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 those poll data on likability, because I, I agree with him, you know, the partisan aspect is crucial to understand there. I've always had an issue with, from a sort of survey research perspective, the wording of that question, uh, because I think it tells us something about voters' views of political figures, but it's such a general sort of uh, uh, descriptor, right, that's being used. It can be interpreted in so many different ways. Um, 
and of course interpreted often through partisan predispositions as adam said but also you know um generally many people think that um uh people who they know who are funny right are likable and a lot of people are entertained by president trump so you know a lot of people you know might you know at least in the background have that in their mind right he's a, a likable enough guy perhaps but that doesn't necessarily mean he's a he, he's a man of high character or an empathetic person or a competent leader per se so i just i, mean, I would just add those caveats in there yeah actually i saw somebody quoted in the press uh, one of trump's supporters being quoted as saying that that she liked trump because he he said insulting things about people that she found that refreshing you know <laughs> so uh, that 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 she was happy that he was a jerk, that, and so that, I think you're right about that, Matt. What does likability really, really mean? So one big contrast. There was a big contrast between the speeches of the two candidates. Uh, Biden gave this 24-minute speech, um, fairly low key, uh, and then Trump had this 70-minute extravaganza at the White House, uh, followed by fireworks, that in which he stuck to the script to some extent, but he deviated in many, in, in a number of places. Uh, so any comments about that? Uh, does, it, does it matter, make a difference? I, don't know. I mean, to me, what was most striking was just how much darker Trump's speech was compared to Biden's. I mean, Biden's speech was was about emerging from the darkness into the light. Um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I think that's roughly what Biden said that he would do as president, lead the country from the darkness to the light, you know, overcome our partisan divisions, um, you know, uh, overcome, you know, red and blue America and unite the country. These are, these are themes that, you know, should sound familiar to us because, you know, they were, they were themes that were regularly sounded by, um, the president that Biden served under, Barack Obama. I think at this point they kind of ring hollow, right? Because Obama said he was going to unite the country, you know, overcome our red-blue divisions, but he obviously didn't succeed. And I think at this point, it, it's it's it seems to most of us unlikely that any president is going to be able to successfully um, get past our really intense partisan divisions. You know, Trump's speech was darker because it mostly focused on all the horrible things that would happen if Democrats would get into power, right? I mean, it was really, really focused on the threat of a Democratic victory. Biden was depicted as a Trojan horse for the extreme left. Uh, and, um, and so, you know, whereas Biden's speech was focused on the good that would occur were he to be elected, Trump's speech was more focused on the bad that would occur were Biden to be elected. I mean, it was there very different emphases. Yeah, man. So uh, just building on what Adam said, um, I think that I would add to, you know, the analysis of Biden's speech by saying it, it was it was not dark, but it was it expressed a kind of seriousness of tone and purpose, as most of the speeches at the DNC did, um, but not in hyperbolic language, per se, and not in, in sort of overly kind of over the top way. Uh, and the other thing I would say about the president's speech is that, uh, well, two things. One is that uh, going back to something that was said earlier about, uh, I think Adam talked about the kind of uh, resonances of sort of American history and this idea of kind of defending 
um, America from sort of the unpatriotic left and Democrats. I found that really interesting because typically you'll see that kind of discourse and often from the right in the context in which there's a major kind of foreign policy uh, controversy or, you know, uh, military conflict, either ongoing or in the recent past. Um, and foreign policy has not been a salient issue, right, in this election. So it's an interesting kind of uh, art articulating those themes as if somehow um, it, 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 America would kind of fall into decline, um, not on the world stage and not by sort of surrendering, right, to other countries, to enemies, but uh, internal, apparently surrendering to internal enemies, right, which is also very troubling from a kind of democratic uh, in historical perspective. The last thing I would say about um, uh, what President Trump uh, was up to in his speech is, and I kind of hinted at this, I think in our last conversation, it's fascinating to which an incumbent president is um, on the one hand is, is very much in an attack strategy, right? And we see that on the Republican side, right? And all the things we talked about. On the other hand, uh, is taking a defensive stance, right? Um, you typically, right, you're warning against Right. It's not an incumbent who's warning against all the bad things that will happen if right, uh, he's defeated by right, uh, a challenger right after one term. Right? Typically, it's the other way around. And so I think that kind of play, plays into the uh, unusual configuration of conditions in this election where we have a president who, you know, should be, at least politically speaking, right, campaigning from a kind of place of security. Right. In a way um, that is not acting like that, right? And the campaign isn't acting like that. And I think you saw that in his speech. I was also struck, and I've, I've actually spoke with my students about it this week, the extent to which both conventions portrayed this election as a contest in which if the other side won, the fate of the Republic was at stake, or that the election is, the election is about the fate of the Republic, and that if the other side wins, uh, democracy dies in America. I mean, that, that's a, both, both from different points of view, it seemed to me both conventions were saying that. Uh, that, I, I don't think we've seen that before uh, to that great of a, I, I, just, I just don't think it's been like that in the past. You're shaking your head at it. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. Although I, I think the way both conventions really emphasized this idea that, you know, this is, quote unquote, the most important election in our lifetimes. I mean, I, I heard that time and time again in a variety of forms from speakers in both conventions. But I think that that meant slightly different things in the two conventions. Democrats were really focused about our, our democracy and our, you know, democratic institutions and our democratic norms and so forth. Uh, I think in the Republican convention, this, the subtext was more that um, culturally the country has been moving way to the left um, and sort of the only thing that's keeping the, the, the proverbial dams from breaking in terms of the rise of the, of, of the complete domination of the left in not just culture but politics is the fact Republicans control the government, or at least that Trump controls the presidency, right? And so to keep the dams from breaking, for, to keep, you know, the left from taking control of America, American society, American culture, American government, and, and changing, you know, the, the very meaning of, of America, um, it's necessary to keep Trump in office. So, you, you know, the, the stakes of this election are very high according to both, both parties, uh, but I think for somewhat different reasons. 
but Adam, do you think that 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 fear of of the left coming to power was all is was also racialized to some degree? Uh, I I'm thinking of the couple from St. Louis who had pulled out their guns uh, when some uh, Black Lives Matter protesters who were going by their house who were were featured, you know, and given quite a bit of time to talk about, you know, their their views. Uh, I mean, what was was that a racial message? There's no doubt that it was. Although, again, let me reiterate, you know, there were a lot of speakers of color in the Republican convention. So they were clearly trying to... Yeah, but that's kind of a disconnect, right? I mean, I think on the one hand, they bring out, well, here's, here's some black people that like Trump, but we really have to fear that if a bunch of people like that come to power, we're, we're screwed. <laughs> so so I, I think, yes, I think it's undeniable that the right's fear about the left's ascendancy has certain racial elements to it. I, you know, I think that's almost indisputable. I think it, it's a fallacy, however, to say that it's only about race. There's definitely other components to it, you know. Um, you know, Christian conservatives are very concerned about the secularization of America and the possibility that they are a, a going to effectively become an oppressed minority group um, that's going to be forced to change their culture um, to, uh, you know, accommodate secularizing cultural norms. Um, you can roll your eyes at that, um, that fear, but I think it is a very genuine fear among a very significant part of the Republican Party's base. And it's one that we should pay attention to. And I, I don't think it, it's fundamentally about race. Okay. Um, can we get back to that use of the White House as a prop? I mean, exactly why should we? I mean, the, the, pres the president gets to use the bully pul pulpit, right? Could you just say, well, he's president. Nobody's done this before, but maybe nobody thought of it. And, and this is, these are special conditions. Uh, he can't accept the nomination in a big convention hall, so he does the next best thing, and he uses his, bully, his, his, his position to use the White House. Uh, you know, I, can't we really have to worry about that uh, so much? I don't know. Matt, you used the word troubling first. Yeah. So, um, I mean, this is a tough one because, you know, so much about what's been going on with uh, the Trump administration is not just about, right, potential rule breaking and maybe law breaking, but norm breaking, right? Just these informal traditions that we've had that I think hold symbolic importance um, in terms of uh, you know, getting back to the Democrats' message that our democracy is at stake with this election. And I think Trump's use of the White House backdrop is troubling, in, number one, from that perspective to a lot of people who see it as a, a kind of breaking with norms of uh, 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 elections are, are uh, although we all know that incumbents, right, use the tools of government and their position of government to try to advance their reelection prospects, um, it shouldn't be so explicit. Um, and it shouldn't be so direct as we seem to be seeing now. And I think the doing this at the White House and having um, the speech there and, and all the other kind of um, uh, sort of accoutrements that went along with that in the convention, um, it, 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 it sort of resonates, right, with that fear. Um, and frankly, with other worries that many Democrats and others have about, you know, so-called, right, uh, October surprises, right, that might be 
pulled out in, you know, in, in terms of uh, announcements or um, uh, actions taken, right, by the executive branch to try to swing the election results, right, which is, um, you know, of course, deeply troubling as well. As an old public administration person, I found the blanket dismissal of the Hatch Act as very troubling. I mean, here, this piece of legislation that is supposed to prevent people from using their governmental position to, to advance partisan aims. Uh, and the Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, came out and said, nobody cares about the Hatch Act. Uh, and, and it clearly was violated repeatedly at the convention with, with uh, whether it's Ivanka Trump or whoever, people who are, who are supposedly government officials and are covered by the act are not, not supposed to, uh, you know, participate in partisan politics. And, and that's kind of out the window. Uh, and I, that's, that's new. That's a real norm violation, I think, that, that at least bothers me. Yeah, Matt, you're going to... Yeah, and the, the other thing, I'm glad that you mentioned that because um, the other thing that is really important to mention here specifically is the role of the Secretary of State, right? And yeah. which, again, foreign policy is not a big issue overall in this election, but I think it's an example of really taking this um, norm breaking, right? Um, to really another level. Um, and not only his participation in the convention in that way, but um, kind of the kind of message he delivered about why it was so important to reelect the president. Uh, I think that shook a lot of people who are, um, you know, close observers of foreign policy and, and diplomatic affairs um, and uh, is troubling as well. Adam, you wanna add your two cents before we move on to something else? I don't have all that much to add to this other than to say that everything that you and Matt have pointed out about how the Republican convention was a norm breaking convention is true. I just think that, you know, over the past four years, we've, we've, you know, we've witnessed so many examples of this kind of norm breaking that from the perspective of most Americans, it's no longer shocking. Um, we've kind of, um, we've, we've kind of been inoculated uh, from caring about it all that much. Um, and, and, and so, you know, this is, this is, I think all, all these incidents are examples of things that maybe momentarily make our jaw drop, but then over the long term don't really matter, unfortunately. And, and so I'll just jump in it here and say, I absolutely agree, Adam. And, but I think the um, sort of the, the, the uh, another level of that is just that um, one could argue that all of this norm breaking and the kind of um, the ways in which we've become jaded to it uh, are, are part and parcel, if not of the Trump campaign strategy, then certainly redound, right, to, the, to the, their benefit, right? Because to the extent that all of this just becomes background noise and it bleeds together um, and it becomes, um, you know, less surprising, right, and shocking every day, uh, then it's harder, right, to, to get people, um, uh, you know, essentially to uh, evoke outrage, right, on the side of the Democrats for these things, which is, of course, part of what their strategy is. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, okay so did these conventions make any difference in the race? Went into the conventions with Biden with a big lead. He still has a big lead in the polls, but maybe a little narrower, but the, the short answer is not very much. Uh, the national polls have consistently shown that <coughs> Biden has held his lead post-convention. It has shrunk a little bit, 
Um, before the conventions, Biden was regularly leading by eight, nine percentage points, depending on the poll. Now it, it might be um, seven to eight percentage points or six to eight. And again, these are the not the state by state polls. Um, and that's an important thing to, to bear in mind. Um, but um, as far as the general race is concerned, uh, I, I'm a little bit more comfortable now than I was last time we talked, um, sort of acknowledging Biden's fundamental advantage in this race. Uh, the reason I say that is because if you look historically at kind of how the presidential campaigns transpire and, and shifts in, in, in uh, support for the candidates across campaigns, generally speaking, the national numbers tend to stabilize to a significant, though not absolute degree after conventions, right? Um, and so you don't see nearly as much swings back and forth um, across uh, between the two candidates after conventions. You see some, but not very many. So for example, a famous example of a campaign in which one candidate um, started out the campaign like during the summer uh, leading, uh, leading substantially, but then went on to lose the campaign was um, the 1988 campaign where uh, Dukakis, you know, was basically leading George H.W. Bush throughout the summer, but Bush ended up winning the presidential election handily. So by this point in the 1988 campaign, uh, Bush had claimed a lead, right? Following the, the Republican convention, um, Bush um, superseded Dukakis in the polls and that continued all the way until November. And, and political scientists think the reason that happens is because, you know, historically anyway, the conventions have caused the party's bases to come home, right? Um, you know, partisans watch their party's conventions and they're convinced through the convention coverage to support their party's candidate. And, and I guess it seems as though that didn't happen this year because the, the, the party identifiers um, in both parties were already home, right? Republicans were already overwhelmingly committed to Trump prior to the Republican convention, ditto for Democrats. And so the, the conventions didn't have that much impact. Um, and, and so, yes, by this point in a campaign, um, the, if a candidate has a substantial lead, it usually maintains all the way until November. So I am more confident that Biden is, is favored in this election now than I was last time we spoke. But for a variety of reasons, which, um, which we can certainly get into, I still think there's plenty of ways in which Trump can win this election. Yeah, Matt. So, uh, yeah, I agree with that. And I'll add to it that... Uh, that, you know, we need to also look at the battleground states, of course. And although Biden still in most credible polls is, ma is maintaining leads in, in most, if not all of them, some of those leads appear to be shrinking a bit. Um, and I think the industrial Midwest in particular, we can think about. Um, and of course, the Trump campaign strategy, we talked about this last time, is, is, is in many ways uh, kind of trying to repeat, right, his path to victory four years ago, which of course those states were crucial, right? So I do think that, although uh, I think the race has nationally more or less stabilized at this point, um, I, I think it would behoove um, the Biden campaign and that side to be anything but complacent at this point in terms of, especially those battleground states. And I think you see the Biden campaign pivoting a little bit on message and in terms of campaign strategy, and you know, in terms of being more aggressive about visits to some of those places, um, it because of you know the worry that 
even if the possibility is small at this point, right, that Trump could, um, especially by uh, turnout dynamics and, and, and issues with the election itself, which I'm sure we'll get to again later, uh, could, could, could kind of slip through, right, again. So, so you know, again, I, I'm sure most of my listeners are, are, are fairly familiar with what's been going on, um, but perhaps they're not familiar with what the latest polls show about how the American people um, have reacted to them and how that's influencing the presidential campaign. And so one, one, first, one thing that's very noteworthy and that should be pointed out at the outset is that support for the protests, support for Black Lives Matter as a movement um, has gone down considerably since the early summer. Um, at this point, the country is split almost evenly, evenly in terms of whether um, the public approves or disapproves of the protests. It's like, you know, low 40s for both approval and disapproval and, and a small percentage of the public doesn't have an opinion, right? Whereas, you know, in, in July, um, a strong majority of Americans expressed support for the protests. And, um, and that was true across party identifier, across all party identifiers, Democrats, Republicans, and independents. There's definitely been a shift since then. Um, this, you know, views on this issue have become a lot more partisan. Republicans have moved to being um, substantially less supportive. Um, at the same time, um, it doesn't appear that voters, uh, at least for now, are buying Trump's argument that his reelection would lead to the restoration of law and order. Um, and so even among voters who, who don't support the protest, who are disturbed by the rioting and the looting and so forth, um, most Americans think that um, the violence and the disorder at the protest would get worse if Trump were reelected. <laughs> A recent survey showed 56% of Americans think it would, it would get worse if Trump were, would, were reelected, as opposed to 18% who thought it would get better. So um, while there has, have been significant shifts in o the overall views on this issue, um, it does not appear that voters have thus far bought into Trump's argument that like he's going to restore law and order. And perhaps that's because he's the president right now, right? Voters understand that, you know, if, if you know, if you're going to bring about law and order, why don't you do it now? You're already the president. Yeah, Matt. Yeah. So that, that uh, Adam kind of ended with the main point I was going to start with was again, this odd kind of incumbency situation. This is a very, very hard sell. This this law and order message for an incumbent president uh, and, you know, in terms of getting large numbers of people to move in that direction and vote on that basis. So that's going to be an uphill climb. It doesn't mean it may not have some important and consequential effects in pockets of the country and potentially politically important states um, and among certain constituencies. The second thing I was going to say about the protest movements is that Adam's absolutely right that polls show that support for um, the Black Lives Matter movement um, and, and protest has gone down substantially. Um, on the other hand, you know, uh, if we look at this historically, you know, Americans have, I don't have the survey data at the top of my, uh, at the tip of my fingertips, but if we look at this historically, Americans have not expressed very high levels of support for protest movements in their own country um, very often, right? And so we can think about the Occupy Wall Street movement um, in a kind of fairly recent history example. Uh, and, and I remember the anti-war movements of the 60s. <laughs> that, uh, the, uh, the, a, lot of, a lot of historical memory of thousands of people in the streets, but in fact, 
most Americans didn't like anti-war protests. Yeah, that, absolutely, absolutely. And, in the, and especially in the earlier days of the civil rights movement, right, in the anti-segregation movement uh, as well, and not only in uh, the South, but in the North in terms of overall public sentiment, although that began to shift over time. Uh, and it's not, so, so in, in that light, you know, 40-something percent of Americans still, despite this kind of heavily racialized kind of law and order message, you know, over the last few months, despite that, still expressing support for a movement like Black, Black, Black Lives Matter is pretty astounding, I think. Uh, and I think it says something politically uh, about uh, where we are right now. Um, the other thing I would just say as well is we're still a majority white country. Um, and so given that, right, I mean, a lot of these attitudes, a lot of the predispositions that well, are gonna like pr create specific attitudes toward a movement like Black Lives Matter or encourage certain attitudes are deeply rooted. And, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's hard for there to be conditions where those kinds of attitudes will change dramatically. So partly what we're seeing is among whites, I think, a kind of swing back to a kind of baseline level of, if not always hostility, certainly skepticism right, of Black Lives Matter and downplaying of the threat of police violence and the inequities in the criminal justice system that have been pretty uh, uh, prevalent, right, among whites, uh, as far as the survey data shows, right, for, for quite a long time. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of research in political psychology and political science that would, you know, has to do with, um, you know, uh, like what's called racial resentment, for example. And I think those levels are, are fairly high and they're going to create a kind of ceiling, uh, at least over the short term, right, for like big bumps in support for something like Black Lives Matter. So I'm not, yeah, I don't put too much stock in that political implications for the short term of, of those data. I've got a couple of follow-ups. Uh, first, uh, uh, I'm shocked that we are seeing uh, political street violence at the level that it has been in some cities and that people have been shot and killed. That to me brings up, resonates uh, the 1920s Weimar Republic with Nazis and social Democrats and communists fighting in the streets. I mean, we, aren't, we surely aren't at that level yet, but, but are we on the verge of that kind of confrontation, even after the election. Uh, so I'm shocked by that, and I'd like your comments on that. And my second concern is, with the protests being prolonged and police violence continuing, we seem to have every few weeks another example of a black person being shot by the police under some circumstance, you know, that, that's videotaped and then goes in social media, uh, that among the supporters of the protests, are they going to become discouraged and disillusioned to the point that they won't participate in the election, they won't vote? Uh, I actually saw a New York Times article this morning where some of the protesters were saying just that. It doesn't make any difference what happens in the election, which to me is seems to me totally absurd. I can't understand how somebody could hold that position, but, but uh, they seem to do. So, so those are my two reactions. Shock at death in the streets, 
and uh, discouragement on the part of people protesting. So I, I, I agree, Bill, with your, just your shock. And I mean, I, I don't really know what to say about that at this point, but it is, I was just talking about this um, last night that just, uh, it, it, again, I think it goes to, um, uh, it's been a kind of an accumulation of, um, of, of conflict and political conflict and social conflict and sort of polarization over time that seems to be culminating in a really frightening moment right now, at least in American historical context. Um, uh, on the um, issue of the protesters being discouraged, um, I think that's a real possibility for many for exactly the reason you said. Uh, I think it points to a broader dynamic you often see with, the, with movements, which is, you know, within the movement, two things, right? So among sort of movement activists and, and the, the kind of leaders uh, of, of protests, there is, a, there is ambivalence and debate about how effective like electoral strategies are or cooperating with you know, um, or encouraging, cooperating with more institutional political actors or encouraging even their members to go out to the ballot box and express their opinions that way. There's a lot of feeling that, well, that is futile, right? Or that's not the way to go. And, and, and there's, uh, there's, a, there's a focus sometimes um, on just a, just a protest strategy, right? Disconnected, right? From the electoral part of it. Um, and I think that that could potentially, right? Have some effects right now. The other thing is that uh, these uh, some, some protesters are not are not what political scientists would conventionally call political. Um, they're, they're more apolitical. It sounds sort of strange, but in the sense that they're not necessarily frequent voters. They're not necessarily you know um, chronically involved with, engaged with, and informed about kind of the institutional political system. Um, and so, like. Uh, the propensity to vote is not, it can't be taken for granted, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And so even though they're highly politicized now, they're politicized in different ways. Uh, I think that for some folks, you know, if, if the Democrats and sort of more broadly kind of the left side of the political spectrum, um, again, would do well to not take for granted the electoral mobilization effects of these protests and to continually, and you see some movement leaders making that message, Right. You need to go out and vote. We need to kind of translate this as well to, right, you know, we're not going to make any progress unless we change the presidential administration. Not that that will be sufficient by any means, but we cannot, even if we're discouraged, right, we cannot sit this out, right? We can't, we can't be dis, you know, uh, become, you know, deactivated um, uh, in that realm. Yeah, I, in that regard, Matt, I heard somebody interviewed on the radio, a young person who was uh, talking about how well it really won't uh, it, it really won't make a difference for for what we want whether Biden or Trump is president that we aren't going to get these things neither one is going to deliver um, uh, are going to are going to prevent uh, police brutality against African Americans and and I I couldn't help thinking as I listen to that person who says it's not going to get better no matter who but it could get worse. Yeah. And, and, and one would think they would imagine that, that though I think there's a tendency not to think about how things might get worse. I think that, that, that um, many Americans intuitively believe, you know, have intuited that things will get worse 
in this particular area if Trump is reelected. I mean, that this is partially what's behind that 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 the polling data that I was just uh, mentioning earlier. Fifty six percent of Americans think the violence at the protest will get worse if Trump is reelected. Only 18 percent think it will get better. You know, there is I think there is this broad sense that that Trump has kind of been fanning the flames um, over the past uh, two, three months via his rhetoric. Um, via his efforts to delegitimize the protests and what they stand for. Um, and I, I think the more interesting question is what happens to these protests if Biden is elected? Um, because to certain, I'm not saying that, you know, anti-Trump fervor is like entirely what's behind this. I, I, don't, I don't want to uh, make it seem like that's what I'm implying. Um, but I think that the national political situation is undoubtedly, um, causing uh, these protests to be as intense as they are, at least to some degree. And as you pointed out, Bill, presidents, you know, uh, can't do all that much about criminal justice policy, which is which is mostly administered at the local level. Um, but I, I and I, so I wonder, you know, will, will the the movement to reform um, policing and criminal justice um, be as vital as it currently is? with Biden as president and with the national political circumstances being different. I just don't know. No, Matt. So I, I, I agree with what Adam said about there being a general, I think, sentiment that's fairly hardened in the country right now that that if Trump were reelected, these things will get worse. Um, going back to what Bill said earlier, that, you know, the Democrats are having a little bit in the Biden campaign in particular to thread a bit of a needle with their strategy on this, because, you know, um, the kind of most, you might say, honest message to, to deliver on this would be exactly what you said. We cannot reelect President Trump or things will get a lot worse, right? Much worse than you can imagine. But, in, but that in, in and of itself is not an inspiring message and necessarily a motivating message. Um, and, and, and it's because turn, you know, part of what turnout is about is excitement, right? About the ticket, about the candidate and about, right, the change and the progress the country, you know, might be in store for, right? If um, if uh, uh, we elect Biden in this example, then, you know, you don't see Biden saying things like, you do see him warning, right? You see them warning about how bad things will be if Trump is reelected, but you also see them maybe not saying that in as direct terms as, you know, we might expect because it, it comes off flat, if that makes any sense, and and, and not necessarily is that going to not usually not going to be a winning campaign message, right? To just kind of say, right, just elect me, and I'll and I will keep my finger in the dam, just to to turn that analogy around that Adam used on the other side before, right? But I'm not going to be able to attack all these systemic problems, right? Yeah, and I think your threading of the needle uh, was was seen in in Biden's convention speech, right? You know, from the darkness into the light. He, there was a, obviously a lot of work, work was put into that speech to end up on an optimistic note, you know, which I think, which he did, you know, uh, and, and, and it also is reflected in that, that slogan that a lot of people criticize, build back better, that we're, we're going to, the better is what is emphasized. There's also an overall undercurrent we can't forget historically of distrust and increasing distrust in conventional political institutions, in government, and political leaders that is, is, is underlying maybe some of, the, of what Bill was talking about earlier with some of the protesters getting discouraged or not so sure they want to go out and vote or vote for Biden. I mean, 
you know, that the, these events and these discussions are layered on top of like this long-term secular decline and certainly, you know, flattening out at least of, of trust, right, in government. Um, and especially among marginalized communities um, uh, of all different kinds, right? And, and we see that in voter turnout as well um, in, in terms of uh, the inequalities in turnout in particular, right? And so, you know, those are very difficult things to kind of turn around dramatically in an election season. So we need to kind of remember that. Uh, why don't we talk a little bit about COVID and the economy? Uh, clearly, part of the Republican strategy is to push those off out of the headlines. The convention went to great lengths not to um, practically didn't mention the COVID pandemic, the Republican convention, uh, although it was the a central topic for the Democrats. Uh, and then also uh, there's this uh, attempt to portray the economy as having recovered. Uh, uh, and we did see uh, a uh, rather positive jobs report for August today, uh, although the stock market, which has been doing quite well, uh, evidently has taken a downturn the last couple of days. Um, is, is any, how, how is this going to play out now over the next weeks prior to the convention? Uh, what, how important is, is it at this point? Or again, are, are, are these things, you know, baked in and, and viewed completely by part, through partisan lenses? Yeah, I, I hope I'm not sounding like a broken record at this point, but I think for the most part, it's baked in. Uh, certainly, if you look at um, the polls um, in terms of questions concerning how much confidence people have in Trump's response to the handling of the COVID crisis, and how much confidence people would have in Biden and his, you know, would-be handling of the of the crisis were he elected president. It's 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 uh it's those the the numbers there are pretty telling. Most Americans have very little confidence in Trump's handling of the crisis. Um, only thirty three percent of them um, express support for the way Trump has handled um, the the whole issue since March. Uh, on the other hand. Um, only 40% of Americans have confidence that Biden would handle the, um, the COVID crisis better. Um, <laughs> so, so the differences between the candidates um, in terms of the way the public perceives their handling of, of this issue is, is, I think, relatively minimal. Um, you know, obviously. That's, that's probably connected to what I was saying about a little bit ago, the, the distrust of government, the, the sense that, 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 that government isn't going to be whoever's in charge. Uh, this is going to be handled, and uh, and there's nothing we can do, and and uh, and that and that that may have that may have been a big factor over these last months about how the United States has handled the the whole situation uh, compared to a lot of other countries where there's more confidence in in uh, in government. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, I I show in in all of my introductory American government courses, I I show students these these graphics that, that uh, depict exactly what Matt was talking about, this kind of long-term secular decline in confidence in our institutions, um, so, you know, approval of Congress, 
Um, you know, approval of Congress has been going, you know, down almost, you know, continuously, um, regardless of who the president is. I think that indicates a lot about people's overall views of the political system. Um, and, and I think over time, um, this sort of gradual decline in confidence in our political system has led to a sort of fatalistic attitude concerning America's ability to respond to big crises, um, including COVID. Yeah, a big contrast with the post-World War II period, right? Absolutely. <laughs> or the, you know, we can, we can, we, yes, we can put a person on the moon. That, that can be done. Uh, Americans are maybe not confident that can happen anymore. Okay, uh, well, we've been talking for just about an hour now. Uh, anything at this point in the race we need to say? Of course, there are a lot of unknowns still. Uh, how many weeks to go, Adam, uh, till the election? Eight sure. weeks, about eight, eight weeks nine. or so. Uh, anybody want to predict anything that might happen or how things are going to shape up? Uh, I mean, going back to something that we talked about several weeks ago, to me, the, the, big, un, the big unknowns are not, you know, the, uh, the civil unrest, you know, the protests, the potential October surprises. I'm just sort of, I'm just sort of factoring into my assessment of the race, the, the, the likelihood that there's going to be more of this stuff. Um, we're gonna be facing a lot of social instability until November. I, I just think that's, that's the, a, a reality we have to deal with. And so in a sense, those kinds of factors, you know, I think are in a disturbing sort of way predictable. Um, what's unpredictable is the way the election is going to play out in terms of, you know, the ability of people to vote, the legal change, the, the legal challenges that are going through the courts at this point. I, um, a well-known scholar of election law, Justin Levitt, has pointed out that there's been 230 um, legal challenges related to this election filed in various states already, right? Um, you know, how, um, you know, those legal challenges are going to play out before election day, after election day, how they're going to interact with this very, very complex process that we have for choosing a president, you know, the popular vote in all the states, the meeting of the presidential electors, right, the delivery of the electoral votes to Congress. Um, across all of these stages of the process, there's so many ways that, you know, conflict could ensue that, you know, um, we would emerge with, we would have uh, disputed um, election results that, that um, you know, the two sides might not accept. It, it's all of that that really, really actually keeps me up at night. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm very... Yeah, we, we might be at the moment where our creaky 18th century constitution, actually, the wheels fall off. I mean, the, at least the, the electoral part of it. I mean, the, the electoral college was always a jerry-built, you know, contraption. Uh, that's never worked well, and this might be the year that it just completely, you know, collapsed. So I, I agree with uh, uh, all the things that you all both said, and, and I'm equally worried about those things. I won't make any predictions, but I will say that one thing I'm going to be looking at a lot in the next few weeks is um, the debates, right? And the debate schedule was just announced in the formats, 
And I say that not because typically the debates themselves have a huge effect, right, on the outcome of, of presidential races, but because in this context, I think, and we see this with the pandemic issue that we were just talking about, just to go back to that, the Trump campaign is really scratching and clawing for every single vote that they can get in those swing states. And of course, both campaigns are doing that, but the, the, the Trump campaign is on the defensive. And so they will attempt, I believe, to use these debates as a way to uh, either turn out some people, right, who uh, might be on the fence, wavering a little bit um, in, in these places, um, and or, you know, hit Biden in the Biden campaign hard enough um, to, you know, just decrease confidence in Biden enough, right, among certain constituencies. So on the pandemic, right, even if in general, most Americans' views are settled on that in terms of the, the Trump administration's handling of it, uh, with you, you see it with the messages that the Trump campaign has made about, um, including uh, a lot of misinformation. Frankly, I think we need to be clear about that. That they're 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 banking on having some marginal effects, right, among people who are don't have good access to information, or you know, to to kind of be convinced that well, the pandemic is not that bad, or the Trump administration's response has not been that bad. I think you'll see that, you know, um, the, those sorts of messages continue and the debate, the debates will be, um, uh, by that point, right, it, the temperature is going to be raised even higher. Um, and, and I think that you won't even say level of desperation on the part of the Trump campaign might be um, even more than what we're seeing right now. Okay. Uh, well, I was going to bring up something that was in the news today. Uh, I'll go ahead and do it. Uh, this interesting news report, this article in the Atlantic uh, where certain anonymous senior administration officials uh, talk about Trump's quotes about deceased American veterans, deceased American soldiers, uh, uh, calling them losers and saying he wasn't going to go to uh, the cemetery, World War I cemetery in France when he was there a couple of years ago because why should he go there and uh, honor a bunch of losers who got themselves killed in a war? Uh, I, I'm wondering, you know, that is, are, are, it's, in a way, this kind of silliness. I mean, here are these people saying this thing anonymously. They're not coming out in public. I think it was easy to, for the Trump administration to deny this stuff. Uh, uh, can we expect a lot more of these kind of odd reports in the next few weeks. Yes, Matt, you think so? I, I think so for sure. And I, I was glad that you brought that up because I don't think that necessarily this story per se, we could expect to have any, you know, any appreciable effect on the race. But what I do think is that even though they're anonymous, it, it, it fits a pattern, right? And we've seen this pattern increasingly in recent weeks and months with, you know, including people closely connected to the administration in one way or another, coming out right um and and painting a picture that even if even if one doesn't read say the atlantic you know uh closely or, or at all it kind of adds to a, just a kind of picture in the public discourse out there of someone who uh lacks character lacks judgment uh and you know for those kinds of maybe wavering independents who are not comfortable ideologically with biden per se um but are really uh uh uh, thinking about the kind of character and leadership issues, you know, I think that it just puts another 
piece of that puzzle out there. And I think we've seen an accumulation of this and we will see more and more. Um, and that's going to be um, uh, an obstacle. I think it's going to like a cumulative obstacle for the Trump campaign to have to scale. Yeah. Adam, do you agree with that? I do. So getting back to your original question, I do expect more of these things to come out. And uh, I do think that they could make a difference on the margins for the reasons that Matt mentioned. You know, they might convince wavering independents, independents um, that are sort of up for grabs to ultimately support Biden. But I think in the long, I, I think the, the bigger, in the bigger picture, um, they're not as significant as, as what this race is ultimately going to be decided upon, which is turnout. Um, I think that, you know, so, so much of the American public, so many people within the American public decided um, who they were going to go. So many Trump supporters, including independent Trump supporters, um, are not going to be surprised by these reports. And these reports will not change um, their overall opinion of Trump or their overall likelihood of voting for him. Um, and so, you know, I always thought that, that, the, the fundamental factor that would be determining, that will determine this presidential race in the battleground states would be turnout across different demographic groups. And, and I still think that's gonna be the most decisive thing. Okay, uh, well, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, why don't we get back together again, I would say uh, towards the end of October uh, and maybe make uh, some last minute assessments the week before the election. Would you be willing to do that, Matt Adam? Oh, oh yeah, certainly. <laughs> You're the, uh, and I'll probably get a couple of our other colleagues uh, together to talk about the Senate races uh, and uh, congressional races uh, in, a, in a few weeks. Uh, but, uh, but we'll be the presidential trio, okay? <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks again, uh, Adam Myers uh, and Matt Guardino. Uh, and thanks also to Chris Judge of PC's Office of Marketing and Communications for his help with the production of this podcast. And most of all, thanks to you, our listeners. Please tell four friends to subscribe to Beyond Your Newsfeed wherever they get their podcast. Thanks so much. <laughs>